Never in human history before have we had to ask what it means to be a man. There has been a progressive demolition of the male role in society, in industry, and in the home. And so we no longer have any idea what a man is. So we have to recreate it. We have to rediscover what it means in this post-industrial age. Men have to be forged. Where can men go to get forged today? When you're on a sailboat in the middle of a three-day storm overnight, and the ocean is raging with like 10-foot waves, there's no calling time out. Who am I going to be in this moment? Am I going to show up? Those experiences are fundamental, and I wanted to put myself into those situations to see how I would respond. What does it mean to be a man? Men worldwide are asking today and finding powerful answers. Do you know yours? So this is the question propositioned by my guest for today's conversation, Will Spencer. Will is the founder of the Renaissance of Men, a podcast and mentoring program which seeks to guide men to their purpose, ignite their passion for life, and restore them to a place of honor in their communities, families, and society. I've been dipping in and out of Will's podcast for quite a while, and he did a really great interview with my friend John Detroit, and also more recently, a really interesting debate with my friend Andrew Howard. So he's someone who has interesting guests and interesting conversations on his podcast, And from listening to his show, I realized that Will is someone who's definitely done a lot of personal work to better himself. And some of his ideas definitely do sound a bit controversial, so just a bit of a trigger warning there. But I do think that all of Will's ideas are coming from an honest place, and his basis for advocating these ideas is in the service of improving people's lives. So I decided to split this episode into two parts because the conversation was just so long that I think it justified making it into two episodes. So in part one, we discussed Will's backstory as well as his personal journey towards masculinity and his thoughts and meditations on masculinity, more generally speaking. And in part two, which will be the episode to follow, we discussed his thoughts on the modern manosphere, femininity and feminism, and Christianity and the basis for morality. So we discussed a bunch of different topics, but the conversation was really flowing. So I just wanted to keep it going. So we ended up recording for over two and a half hours, which is why I decided to split this one into two parts. So if you enjoyed this episode or this part of the episode, make sure you give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast app you're using. And if you're new here, welcome. Make sure you give the pod a subscribe for future episodes. You can support the episode in a few ways. The first is via Buy Me A Coffee and the second is via Bitcoin Tips. You can see links in the description for both of those. And you can also help support the show and help me grow by listening on the Fountain app, which is available on iOS and Android. Thank you to those who boosted me some sats on the last episode. PS supported me once again with 2,500 sats saying, thank you, gentlemen, very powerful episode. I had an intense journey using psychedelics. In my youth, I abused them and had some horrible experiences. Now as an adult, they have been a savior for me in small or micro doses. Thank you again, peace and love. And there's another message here from Piers saying, the signal is strong, this is the way. Appreciate the support once again, Piers, and glad that you have had a positive experience with microdosing psychedelics. Anyway, thank you for everyone who has supported me in whichever way you've chosen to support me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So without further ado, here is part one of my conversation with Will Spencer. All right, Will, thank you for joining me on the State of Free podcast. I'm, uh, I'm really keen to get into some topics with you today about masculinity and Christianity and, and all these other things that you're talking about on your podcast, The Renaissance of Men, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of. I really like the, the conversations you're having. I've been listening to it more recently and going through some of your own uh, kind of 
I guess like the more monologue episodes, like rather than the mm. interview ones. And I definitely think there's a lot of value there. So love the stuff that you're talking about and keen to get into some of these ideas. So first of all, do you want to just give my listeners and viewers a intro as to yourself? Yeah, thank you, Johnny. I, I really appreciate that. I want, I want to talk to you about the monologue episodes, actually. Uh, so uh, my name is Will Spencer. I host the Renaissance of Men podcast. I started out the podcast in 2020 to document what I see as the 40-year global rebirth of masculinity recovering um, from decades of feminism and the industrial revolution as men began re-exploring what have, what have we lost when it comes to, to manhood. And I, I've seen that dialogue evolve over the past 40 years. I did not start what I call the renaissance of men. I just observed it and gave it a name. And so I started the podcast to document that evolving conversation. And over the course of documenting that evolving conversation, I discovered Christianity and uh, realized that Christianity is the firmest foundation to root both masculinity and femininity and so much more. And so I became Christian actually before starting the podcast, but it's become more and more a part of everything that I do. So now uh, my podcast and my men's mentorship and men's groups are centered around uh, Christian uh, biblical masculinity. All right, cool. So yeah, as to, you know, how you got into all this stuff, I, you know, like I said, I've been listening to to some of your podcasts, but I don't entirely know uh, your backstory. I know that you had a, mm. you went traveling and that seemed to be kind of a big moment for you in kind of going through this process of self-discovery. So yeah, I guess yeah. just like rewinding the clock, how did you get into talking about all of these uh, ideas of masculinity and the things that you're talking about now? Like what was your life kind of before and what was that turning point for you? So um, to give you the, to go as, as far back as is necessary and give you the shortest version starting from there. So when I grew up, I was always a, a very academically minded kid. I wasn't bad at athletics, but I didn't particularly, it wasn't a huge focus for me. I enjoyed books. I enjoyed school. I enjoyed reading and math. And I was really good at those things. And I found that uh, as a result, I was excluded from sort of the jock world. I wasn't into pizza and beer and football and fraternities and all of that stuff. But that was the mm -hmm. image of masculinity that had always been given to me by my culture. And so I went through life thinking that there was something fundamentally broken about me as a man. That I'm just wrong. And it wasn't until I took a class on actually Carl Jung and psychology in college in 2021, where the professor uh, had us examine the Lord of the Rings from the perspective of the movie series uh, and the books as well from the perspective of masculinity. And then in the course of that uh, class, I saw that the Lord of the Rings portrays all these different kinds of men that have all these different skills and abilities. And no man is looking at another man and saying, I don't think you're mad enough, old man. I don't think you're man enough, dwarf. I don't think you're man enough, Mr. Pretty Guy with the blonde hair, right? And you look at the contrast even between Frodo and Aragorn, and both of those kinds of men have two very different roles. And, and what's actually kind of amazing about the Lord of the Rings is that Frodo's role is the most central. His task is the most important. And yet he, in many ways, he's the weakest and the most, and the most humble. Now, that's not an excuse to be weak. It's just to show that there are so many different aspects to what it means to be a man. And that got me asking the question, like, maybe I'm not actually broken. Maybe there's just different parts of me that I have to cultivate rather than trying to fit into one model of masculinity. So that sent me on a, a slow kind of 12-year journey of just asking questions. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a man? Until in 2013, I discovered an organization called the Mankind Project, which is basically defunct now. Uh, but they hosted a 48-hour weekend men's initiation and I went on that initiation weekend and there were 50 other men with me and a, and a giant staff. And there were some very powerful experiences. And I was looking at around, I was looking around at this giant room full of men, all different ages, all different walks of life, 
you know, from ages 20 to 70 who were all struggling with this same question. I was like, hang on a second, what's going on here that all these different men are asking these questions? Very powerful turning point for me. And then um, I had always wanted to travel. It had been a dream of mine um, since, since that Carl Jung class, essentially. And after 15 or 15, 16 years, I finally made it possible. And I was able to, able to sell everything I owned and start a backpacking adventure and, and go on a bunch of crazy wild trips around the world and, and do all these different things. And in that process, I discovered the manosphere. Um, and the red pill. And what I, what I realized was that you have this mankind project, men's inner work, men's initiation world that talks about the inner lives of men. But then you have the manosphere broadly that doesn't talk about men's inner lives, but that talks about their outer lives, fitness, personal finance, women, right? And so you have this two halves of the dialogue and they don't know, they don't seem to know anything about each other. They're not talking to each other but they're both saying such incredibly relevant things. And so I was like, well, what's going on here? And so that was where I had the idea of coming to understand what I call the Renaissance of men, which now I see culminating in a rediscovery of what it means to be a man rooted in, in the Christian faith, which is the only place to root it, as I mentioned. So that's my background is, uh, is a, sort of a 20 year journey, 23, 20, 23 years now, basically of understanding in myself what it means to be a man and understanding in the world what it means to be a man and historically and also going forward as well. Wow, yeah. I mean, it seems like th these kind of topics would be something that are either inherent or are not inherent in men. So why do you think that more people don't go on don't go on this journey? Why do you think more men aren't kind of questioning what the what that kind of spiritual nature of masculinity is and kind of walking that path? Why is this such a still a relatively niche thing, even with the kind of, I guess, the rise of the manosphere, which I'm sure we can get into whether whether it's kind of the, the real manosphere or not, the, at least the mainstream kind of edition of that. But yeah, why don't more men go on this journey? Because never in human history before have we had to ask what it means to be a man. I have a book on my shelf, by I think is the author's name is Walter Newell, N-E-W-E-L-L. -L. It's called What is a Man? And what the book is, it's a compilation of different great men throughout history talking about manhood and masculinity. But what they're talking about is not the essence of what it means to be a man, but what it means to be a good or virtuous man. That used to be the nature of the conversation, not what is a man to begin with. It's like, how can we be good men? But starting in the Industrial Revolution and then capped off by, and then, and then accelerated in feminism up until this point in time, there has been a progressive demolition of the male role in society, in industry, in the, and in the home. And so we no longer have any idea what a man is. So we have to recreate it. We have to rediscover what it means in this post-industrial age. And so in past eras, men would pass manhood down to their sons. They would pass masculinity down to their sons by working with your dad in the shop or on the farm. And by seeing the way that he conducted himself and producing a livelihood and being a husband and a father, you would learn masculinity that way. When we demolished the male role, in the home, first and foremost, with the Industrial Revolution, with men going off to work in the dangerous factories that kids can't follow, that was a first strike. And then when feminism said men have been oppressing women for all of civilization, that further demolished men's role in the home. So boomer men, particularly who got so much of this programming, essentially told their sons, we don't have anything to teach you about masculinity. Go figure it out for yourself. And so that led to generations of wandering, both of Gen X, millennials, Generation Z, who don't really know. And yet you're right. Manhood, masculinity is inherent in us. 
and it's swimming around until we can actually identify what it is. Now, what prevents the mainstream from catching on to this conversation is because men discover very quickly that they start standing up and speaking confidently and carrying themselves with dignity as a man, they get immediate force feedback from the environment around them that calls them names like toxic masculinity because they start stepping on women's toes and they don't start, they don't, they start not just taking whatever is around. We live in a hyper feminist nation where uh, men, though many argue about this, I don't think there's any other way around it, culturally are pushed to the back. And there's been symptoms of it for decades that aren't in, that aren't in question. And when you decide to buck that trend, you get immediate pushback. Look at Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson came out in 2017 and he was dignified and put together and carried himself with a suit and spoke about men cleaning their rooms. And what happened to him? He was destroyed. He was destroyed and he ended up having to go into uh, rehab in a mental institution because the whole world landed on him for saying pretty basic stuff. You know, he got addicted to painkillers and he talks about that journey. That's what happens to men when they stand up and speak up on behalf of men because our world is so feminist. So the reason why men don't catch on to this conversation is because the price can be so high. And yet it is still innate in us, which is why never before in human history has it ever been questioned. So there's a real battle going on right now. Okay. So going back to your your own story then, I think you said it was 2013 that you kind of decided to pack all your things up and travel and, and kind of go on this journey of self-discovery, yeah. right? That was, uh, that was 2016 when I left to travel. Did you know when you were embarking on that journey that that was going to be a journey of masculinity or was it just you were going traveling and it just happened that during this time, these ideas kind of started bubbling up for you? Um, I, I didn't actually know that it was going to be a journey of masculinity and the way that it turned out to be. Uh, I did know that it, what, I, what I said to a friend at the time was that I was going looking for God. And I didn't like that description um, because it was too grand. And it did, but it was as close as I could get to it. And there was a lot of, uh, a big part of my journey has been uh, my journey through world religions and spirituality, which we can talk about. So there was a component of that where I was going to explore world religious practices and, and spirituality as well. But I wouldn't have conceived it as a journey of masculinity in that way. But I did know that I wanted to test myself and see who I was in different environments. So I traveled with a carry-on size backpack it was just me with carrying 40 liters on my back. And that was all that I owned. And so, uh, and so that made me very uh, flexible in terms of the places that I could go and the things that I could do. And so I had uh, many adventures, like climbed mountains. I went to the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute in India, which was a three-week mountain climbing school in the, Himal the Himalayas. I was the only white guy on the course. Thankfully, a lot of it was in English. Um, I sailed across the South Pacific, you know, from Fiji to Vanuatu and other islands on a, on a sailboat. Um, I was down and I went trekking through um, Torres del Paine National Park in Peru. I, uh, sorry, uh, it's in Chile. All different adventures uh, like that. And so I wouldn't have conceived it as like I'm testing my masculinity, but it's like, you know, I grew up not being challenged. There's something there's something about men where. We need, as men, to encounter hard, non-negotiable reality. This is why barbell training is so powerful. You can't negotiate with the barbell. It's, it doesn't care. You can scream at it. It's, it still weighs the same, and you can either lift it or you can't. And so, as men, those encounters with hard, non-negotiable reality used to be our inheritance. The farmer, for example, right? Look, the rain doesn't come. doesn't matter if you scream at the sky. 
you still have to provide food for your family. That was a formative experience for men. But nowadays, everything is negotiable. Oh, you get the project turned in a little bit late, you negotiate with your boss. Everything's fungible. But when you're on a sailboat in the middle of a three-day storm overnight, and the ocean is raging with like 10-foot waves, there's no calling time out. Like, hey, I'm just going to pull over to Starbucks and have a latte right now. It's like those experiences are fundamental. And I wanted to put myself into those situations to see how I would respond. And so to that extent, yes, it was a journey of masculinity, even if I didn't call it that. Because at the time, just real quick, I didn't know about the manosphere. That was already going on. I just knew about this men's initiation that I had been on. So for a whole two years, I'm traveling until I discover the manosphere. And I realize the conversation is way bigger than I realized so that that was that was a part of it as well. And then I understood that I was trying to reclaim and recreate what a lot of other men were around the world as well. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, like a lot of people, I still think have this idea that, you know, when when you go off and you do uh, you go traveling, especially solo traveling, this kind of thing. A lot of people kind of seem to think, oh, well, you know, this is just some kind of like middle-class endeavor that's, you know, like somewhat, it's just, you're just going and wanting to take nice pictures for Instagram or something. But there's actually, it can be that for some people, if that's the experience yes. that you that you go for and you actually have that experience and you just stay in all of the nice, easy places and you don't test yourself, et cetera. Like it can be that, but mm -hmm. it can also be the absolute opposite of that. And I think that, I think that solo travel, especially, and especially for men, I mean, you know, I don't, Kind of profess to kind of like understand the women's experience so i don't know whether it is a form of experience sure. for women as well but certainly for men i think it can be just like hugely hugely beneficial because i actually went on a similar similar journey to yourself it sounds like because i oh, went um away in 2018 and during that time i didn't even i didn't even realize that i had any kind of i guess that i need to rec reconcile something with my masculinity at that time before i left and in 2018, mm. I went solo traveling and I was, I was gone for probably, I think in total, um, it was close to two years, maybe somewhere between a year and a half and two years, but I spent a year, a year just solo traveling and just going around and backpacking. I lived in a van. I did, you know, Vipassana. I did like all of this, these, uh -huh, I did that kind too. Of very testing. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I did a lot of this, but actually during that time for me, where were you? I was listening. Well, I was Sorry. in uh, mainly Southeast Asia. Like, so I, I started off, well, I actually started off in Japan and then I went to Myanmar and then I went to um, Vietnam, Laos, uh, Thailand, um, Indonesia. I went, to, I just went to, I think I just went to Bali in Indonesia, Malaysia. Mm -hmm. I went to Singapore. I, I went to like quite a lot of places during that time. Okay. And and during that time, I I started listening to a podcast and it was actually, it wasn't, it wasn't Jordan, Jordan Peterson, but it was it was a couple of guys. I wish I could remember the names. I've actually tried to find it since and I cannot remember what the name of this podcast was, but it was two guys who basically broke down when Jordan, Pe Jordan Peterson's kind of, uh, you know, interviews and his talks and stuff. And they just went into it. They were literally kind of like play bits for it and then say, okay, this is what's being articulated here. And these are the things to think about. And it was kind of just like, just general like meditations on some of the, th some of the things he was teaching. And I just became really, really attracted to this content. Like I just thought there was yep. something inherently there. And I recognized during that time, okay, like this this was in some way for me also like it sounds similar to you it was a it was kind of an experience of going and going into my own masculinity somewhat yeah. and i think that travel can definitely be that for people and maybe putting yourself through those hardships kind of starts to get those cogs turning in a way it starts to get you thinking in those terms and then maybe maybe you become more drawn to it and you start saying okay what is this about you know because we're searching for something right you don't go on a trip like that if you're not searching for something and then you say well mm -hmm. where's that search coming from and then you know that kind of leads you to questions about masculinity 
Yes. Amen. Well said. And just to answer your question, I was kind of trying to see if we crossed paths. So I went through South America, so Peru, Argentina, Chile, Ecuador, Colombia, and then I went to Asia. I was in, this is in no particular order, so like China, Japan, and Mongolia, and then also through Southeast Asia, so Indonesia, um, Australia, New Zealand, spent a, spent a good bit of time traveling through New Zealand as well, and then Thailand, lots of t- six months in India, like seeing the whole country, Nepal, and I'm probably leaving. I didn't make it to Vietnam. That was on the list. Um, I did spend just a little bit of time in Thailand, not a, not a whole ton. Um, I think, I think that covers most of the places that I went, but yeah, Mm -hmm. that's essentially, that's essentially what it is. Yes. And for men, for men, it's a really important stage to take, but I think not all men are inclined towards it. Some men have no desire to leave their hometown and that's completely fine and valid. But I think that there, there are some men, um, who are looking for something that can't be found in the home environment, which is um, something hard. And I was, I'm reading a book right now called Men and Marriage by George Gilder. Very powerful book. Came out in 1986, was recently re-released uh, on uh, Canon Press. Excellent, excellent book. Very confronting, especially when you take into consideration it's like 25 years old. Um, and in it, uh, he talks about how many men feel stifled in their pursuit of masculinity because there's nothing hard for men to do anymore. There are trades, there are professions that are very difficult, but there's no godly challenges really. And so what do men do? Men try to assert their masculinity in the most available way, which is essentially through lots of casual sex. That's a form of conquest that's readily available to many men. Um, And so that is what they go and do. Now, if that's not satisfying, pun allowed, but not intended. If that's not satisfying in various ways, what are we going to do as men? Well, where are we going to go find testing? You know, and, and the travel enables that, whether you're staying in cities or whether you're going out into the wilderness on adventures or whether you're going on hard meditation cushions in the mountains. These are ways to test ourselves and forge ourselves. In fact, the process, one of the processes of forging is you take a piece of metal, you heat it up really, really hot in a forge, and then you beat on it with a hammer until all the impurities come out. That is the classic metaphor for men that we are being forged. Well, the classic metaphor for women is like a flower. It just opens. It just is. But men have to be forged and uh, true, like capital M men have to be forged. Where can men go to get forged today? There are very few opportunities, so we have to create them. So yes, there's a way to travel in luxury and to, you know, to do it for the gram and get all the right photos and, and all that. But there's a way that it can be a sacred journey where you go and, and allow yourself to be forged. And it's a very unique challenge. It doesn't appeal to all men, but it's good to meet another man who gets it. Yeah, yeah. So have you, have you looked in, um, have you looked much into kind of like tribes and more like, not necessarily like ancient civilizations. I think some of them, you know, that still exist today where they'll, they will send their boys out at a certain age and they'll mm-hmm. basically banish them from the tribe and say, okay, you know, like hopefully see you in a few years when you come back, but you're out on your own mm-hmm. now. And I think it still happens today, but it certainly used to happen a lot. I know that the, I think the Aboriginals, they used to have, this as like a, a tradition. It was like very, very um, common, if not just essential for that, for that culture. And I've talked about mm-hmm. it a few times on my podcast with, with regards to like how, People like perhaps all men need to go through this experience in their life. You know, perhaps that is just something yeah. that is that is natural and imbued and we have to go through it. So like you said, since we don't live in these kind of like tribal 
um, environments anymore where we're having these traditions. We need to find new ways. We need to find new ways in the model, modern world, world to have them. So yeah, I'm wondering how much you've thought about that. Um, that there's parallels there. A ton. Yeah. That's what you're talking about is men's initiation. And so the, the initiation that I went on in 2013 was a men's initiation, but it wasn't about going out and doing a hard thing like that. But there were very many hard things um, to do on that weekend. There it was an initiation experience. It was a proper initiation experience where you're tasked, you're tasked with doing something that forces you to go deeper into yourself and reach higher above yourself to succeed and that you can fail at. Like you're forced to confront your limitations as a man and reach beyond yourself to push beyond yourself for the first time in a very, in a very, um, well, a very difficult way. And if you succeed at that, you are acknowledged by the men around you as having accomplished that. And now you are a man, you know, that being a man, that being a good man means being able to go beyond yourself because you've succeeded in it. And so that is the essence of the initiation experience. So these Aboriginal tribes around the world would say, okay, you know, go out and go do this difficult thing. Maybe you can go, you have to go hunt something or you have to go some, some, uh, some tribes you have to survive, you know, covered in ants, like the initiation rituals around the world can be quite brutal. And so, you know, praise God that we don't have that in our modern world. We'd probably have far fewer men. Um, but the advantage of these old initiation rituals is that the men who survived, the boys who survived recognized how to go beyond themselves. They had learned how to do that and they could be relied upon to do it again. And so we have in many ways sort of an, uh, an epidemic, a pandemic of, of weak men. And what does it mean to be a weak man? Ultimately, it means being unable to go beyond yourself. And so you have a lot of, uh, a lot of boys who are being challenged to grow, to expand, to move beyond Peter Pan syndrome and grow into husbandhood and fatherhood and providerhood. And they're unable to go beyond themselves into that greater level of responsibility. And they stagnate and rot and fall away. And we have, and we have a lot of that. So those initiation rituals, those initiation rites used to test the men and forge them into better versions of themselves. We don't have it anymore. So some men feel that impulse and go and do something about it at great personal cost, but uh, and, and that is a, that's a blessing from God that that was possible, that it was made possible for me. Um, I certainly wasn't owed it. Uh, and that's why I tell the story. It's like, this is real. Here's the experience that I had. Here's how, here's, here's what we need as a society. Now let's work on creating it for more men. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, um, I guess when you were on this journey, then what were those, do you have any kind of key experience key experiences that you had that you can share also some of your key, the key learnings that, that were kind of brought about through that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tons. That's the thing is, is people, it's funny that you're giving me the opportunity to think about a question that people ask me in a new way is they, people ask me, well, where's your favorite country? It's like, well, that's, how, do I, how do I even answer that? Like, what's your favorite, what's your favorite fruit? You know, it's like, well, I got different ones for different times. But as I think back to the way that I, the ways that I usually answer the question, I can look back and say that different countries that I went to challenged me to go beyond myself in, in various ways. So a good first example, I would say is probably uh, Colombia. So Medellin, Colombia. So um, uh, in, in Colombia, so I, I had lived in, San, I was living in San Francisco. San Francisco is heavily, femi hev heavily feminist, talking about patriarchy, the male gaze, are, men are inherently oppressive and they've been oppressing women for all the time and all that stuff. So I went down to uh, Colombia and 
uh, I was, I'm a six foot tall guy. So tall, you know, personable kind of guy. And I was getting a lot of attraction from women down there. And I was doing things like averting my eyes, thinking that I was being oppressive, you know, being respectful. And the women were essentially like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm being respectful. Like, you know, uh, the, what, what they said was essentially like, stop being a pussy, be a man. And I was like, how interesting. And that made me realize that this feminine, this notion of feminism in America is cultural, which means it's arbitrary, which means it's not written in some divine law that different women around the world have different expectations for men and manhood. And that absolutely was the first thing that cracked open so much the dogma that had been programmed into me. And like, because there were natural things that I wanted to do, a natural kind of man that I wanted to be in San Francisco that I was told was evil and wicked and broken and responsible for all this terrible stuff in the world. And I go down to Columbia and they're like, no, it's not like that at all. What are you talking about? And so that was the, that was one of the first big uh, challenges to my worldview. I had to relearn how to be. It was a great blessing to me. And then I can also think about, you know, being in India, which, which came a number of a couple of years later, which I was there for six months. And India is as much like an alien civilization to America as you can possibly, as you can possibly get. It's dirty, it's noisy, it's crowded, right? It's a very high stress, low personal space kind of environment, very different very different system of values, very, very taxing. But I wanted to see and understand the country as much as I could. And I wasn't looking for ashrams. I didn't, I didn't do any of that. I wanted to get it. And so for six months, I pushed myself, you know, on trains and buses and planes to try and see as much as I could to really get this country. And it took a ton out of me. Like in some sense, I was training for three years to be ready for India um, and, and to really, to really be able to, you know, have my process nailed down. Like, where am I getting my flights from? How am I carrying myself in public? You know, how am I being aware of my environment to really, to really see on an ongoing stressful basis, how can I be a true explorer, a stranger in a strange land? And so that's just a couple of bookends of the experience. There were plenty of others, you know, an ayahuasca retreat in Peru, which I don't advocate for anymore, but that was also very formative. Of course, you know, I, I mentioned like a three-day, I was caught in a three-day storm on a sailboat with three other people between Fiji and Vanuatu. If you don't know where Vanuatu is, now is your chance to go to Google Maps and find out where it is. It's, a, it's an archipelago in the, the South Pacific. And so it's a seven, it was a seven-day sail between those two islands. Three days out, we get caught in this big, big storm in the middle of the ocean. And it's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> You're just going to have to make it work. And that was a real moment where, where, like I said, I had to see what kind of in the middle of the night, you know, for, for eight hours through the driving rain where I could just see essentially an arm's length in front of me to the compass as I was holding the wheel. Who am I going to be in this moment? Is I, am I going to show up? And getting to witness myself perform in that moment was probably one of the most transformative moments to see this is, this is who I am or this is who I'm capable of being. No one gave this to me. No one's standing over me. No one's telling me to do this. This is my choice and how I handle this situation, which could be life, life or death. Like legitimately in the middle of the ocean, this could be life or death. And so who am I going to show up as in this moment? And I was, I was very um, blessed to get to discover that about myself. Wow. That's, um, yeah, that sounds like a, a, a crazy story. I just want to pick you up on two things, actually. Well, actually, you know what? Let's, let's stay on that for a minute. Do you mind, do you mind sharing the yeah, story? Of course. I feel like you've, you've piqued, you've piqued my interest and probably piqued the interest of the people listening. So let's hear yeah, it. Yeah, please. Sure. Do you want to hear more about the story or, or 
yeah, just what happened? What happened with the with the, the situation with the storm? Yeah, so um, so I found um, th there's a whole community online of um, of sailors who are looking for crew to sail their boats. So if you have any interest in learning to sail, you can you can go online and find various websites where. Um, captains are trying to sail their boat from point A to point B. They can't sail the boat or prefer not to sail the boat on their own. So they bring on board crew members of various levels of experience to help them get the boat from point A to point B. So I, um, I had found, I had loved sailing. I grew up, I, I mean, I live in the desert, so I'd been sailing a few times, but I loved it. And so I had been on a sailing adventure in New Zealand. And, and one of the guys who was there with me on that, on that was like, you should do more of this. So he pointed me to the opportunities to find these captains online. So I met, I found a captain online who wanted to sail his boat from Fiji, from Savu Savu, Fiji, S-A-V-U, S-A-V-U. If you want, anyone wants to look it up, Savu Savu, Fiji, to Vanu, the archipelago of Vanuatu, then to New Caledonia, which is another series of islands, and then and then down to New Zealand. So it was a it was a rather long adventure, and um, so we chatted online. I flew out to Savu Savu, helped him put the boat together essentially, and then a another another couple showed up, uh, B and Gabor, who were from Hungary. They had also found the same. They had wanted to do a similar adventure. So it's a it was a big heavy steel hulled boat. Now, steel-hulled boats are, are very safe. It's, it's very difficult to puncture a steel hull, but they're also very slow. So as you might imagine, because it's heavier. So many boats that people will be on today will be fiberglass. So they're very, very light and very, very fast. But um, they, depending on the conditions, they might not be very safe, like coral reefs and stuff like that. So we're in this big, heavy steel-hulled boat, low-tech boat, 1970s boat. There's no ship to, sh <laughs> there's not really any ship to shore radio, radio. There's no radar. We're just sailing out in the middle of the ocean and we end uh, from Fiji to Vanuatu. And so what would normally be like a three or four day crossing is like seven for us because the boat is so heavy. So we get about three days in and the storm kind of starts up and the rain starts coming and the waves start getting more intense. And uh, we don't know how long the storm is going to last because we don't have any radar. We have no idea what's happening. Thankfully, it's probably not cyclone season, but you know, who knows? So, um, mm -hmm. the first night we had to do what's called, you know, heave two. And when you heave two, what you essentially do is you drop the sails, you put up one like safety sail that keeps the boat pointed in the right direction. And you button up the boat basically like you're a ship, you're a message in a bottle and you just like sleep down and you let the boat get tossed around on the waves overnight. And so that's what we did the first night. Actually had one of the best nights sleep of my life, believe it or not, sleeping on the floor and bracing myself against a couple places. But the next day comes on and the storm is still happening. It's like, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to try and navigate through this storm to where we're going to go? Or are we just going to just let, just ride it out? And so we decided to navigate. So we, we kept the sails down and, um, we put the engines on and we just essentially started driving and through the day, the storm became more and more intense as we head into night. So the sun goes down. I mean, it'd been super cloudy all day. The sun goes down and the way that it worked on the boat was every sailor. There were four of us was responsible for a three hour watch. So you'd sail for three hours and then someone else would take over, et cetera. So there was a schedule. So midnight comes around. I was on the 9 PM to midnight watch. Midnight comes around and then B, the, the, the young girl who was uh, the girlfriend of Gabor, she's on the, the midnight to 3 a.m. watch. And she goes and she pokes her heads up, head up from below. And she just has this 
terrified look on her face because it was quite intense conditions out there like out there like driving rain i'm exposed under it i'm not under a canopy canopy i'm exposed i'm sitting in a i'm sitting uh in in the cockpit with this essentially raincoat just looking like i can see to the my hand on the wheel with a red light compass pointing me which direction i go so my job is to steer in the right direction through the storm and she pokes her head up from below and she has this terrified look and i'm like you know what don't worry about it just go back down below and so she goes back down below and uh, her boyfriend gabor comes up and uh for the next eight hours it was he and i driving the boat through the storm with lightning so bright like it was like daylight and dry, like literally driving rain being tossed up and down the captain with this big heavy boat was completely passed out and checked out and missed his watch after uh being landing on us multiple times don't ever miss your watch don't ever miss your watch and then he was checked out so it was like okay well we're not gonna bug him um because a lot of sea captains out there aren't awesome people so um so it was gabor and i trading shifts for an hour an hour on an hour off through the driving rain until the dawn came at eight o'clock in the morning. And it was during that time that I recognized that um, the captain's checked out B is uh, understandably terrified. And uh, I had done adventurous stuff before. And so uh, I've been through some crisis situations at the times in my life. And so sitting there driving, I realized for whatever set of circumstances, um, I have to be the moral center of this boat and hold and hold this together with my actions, not my words. And so I remember that moment, like, okay, I have to be the guy to do this. And I remember that very clearly when I decided this is how I'm going to be in this moment to be the guy that sets his jaw and says, we're going to get through this so that I could lead Gabor so that he could lead his girlfriend and so that we can make it. And um, I remember that moment and, and I did, and I was very proud of that. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. So yeah, it sounds like that might have been your crescendo moment on this on this trip, the moment that you really kind of like came into your own, your uh, Helm's Deep, Aragorn at Helm's Deep moment. Very much. Thank you yeah. for hearing that and seeing that. I've thought that, but never said it out loud. So thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to pick you up on two other things that you said actually on the on the um, on the travel, like related to the travel thing. First of all. You meant you said that India. You're spending this this six months trying to figure out what is it about. What is it about? Because I I had the same thing. I actually only I didn't go to India probably um, long enough to answer that question. I was there for about I think I was there for six or seven weeks. Um, mm. So for me it was like it was it was a crazy place. But you know mm -hmm. I never um, I never quite an answered that question. I thought it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. But yeah, what what is it about? What did you what did you find at the end of that six months? Mm. I mean, the, 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 the standard is that people say that India is a land of contradictions, a land with um, incredible cultural wealth, but incredible industrial poverty. Um, and uh, so, so many people and, and seemingly so little and such great tradition and, and such a such a bleak moment in many ways um, in terms of the state of, of Indian civilization. And I say that, I say that with love for the, the people of India. It's not, it's not criticism. Um, it, it, it's just the reality of, of what it's like being on the ground there and, um, and what the challenges they are, they have to work with. So I, I think for me, the, the most important thing that I learned, uh, you, you asked what India, what India is about. And, India represents in many ways the world that was before Western civilization. 
So you go to almost any other country on earth and it's going to be industrialized to some degree in a way that will hide the pre-industrial origins of human civilization. So China, for example, China is a very, Asia itself is a very, very different place to be, but you can still see how industrialized particularly Japan is. India is big enough and wild enough and ancient enough that you can actually get a sense of what it might have been like to be alive three or 5,000 years ago. Um, it obviously is still industrialized. There are the auto moto taxis and trains and planes and, and digital communication, but there's a component of the country that's still very, very wild, like it probably always will be. And so getting to walk through the country and go all, all four corners of it. I went to, um, the, I, I tell the story a lot. I went to the Kumbhela Hindu festival, 190 million Hindus. Um, one of their it happens every four years. It's in was in Prayagraj in 2019, and so I went to that. It's like one of the only white people at this entire at this entire thing bathing bathing in the Ganges River. I absolutely loved Varanasi. The waterfront in Varanasi was incredible, and then getting down to Kerala and then to Rishikesh and you know Ahmadabad and out to Jason, the Jaisalmer Desert, right right on the border essentially with Pakistan. Like I got to see I got to see the whole country, and it was the experience of being able to endure um, the industrialized chaos, because there's a lot of that, to be able to have an experience of pre-modern civilizational wildness and to understand how absolutely glorious it is to have come so far as a civilization to be able to have the cities we do and to be able to live in a place like I do in America. And that's not to criticize India, understand. That's to recognize what an incredible benefit, what an incredible blessing the gift of civilization is. Again, deprogramming myself from this liberal mindset that we need to go back to this wild state of nature. That's chaos. It's imaginary. The noble savage was never a thing. It's a story that many, I would say, many liberals in the West, although it's quite old, have made up as a way of hating civilization. They resist this, 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 the structure of civilization. They resist the discipline required in many cases to, to make it go. And they long for this return to a state of nature when men was, were free in Gaia. It's like, it was never like that. Civilization was always wild. It was always chaotic. It was always violent. And this is a really great blessing. And it's very difficult to find that there are places probably in sub-Saharan Africa where you can also find it but India, India is probably um, the best place and the most convenient place for Westerners to go and have that experience among many others. Like, let me be clear that there is so much to experience in that country that is good and informative and inspiring and glorious. And also to go and really have an in-depth, up-close and personal experience of like pre-civilizational wildness or just pre-civilizational wildness is something I think people need to have. And real quick, the reason why a lot of people go to India is they go seeking enlightenment because they hear about like, oh, you go to India for the gurus or whatever. And a lot of naive travelers will go to India thinking it's this land of miraculous enlightenment and they'll be encountered with that wildness and it'll be deeply disillusioning to them and they'll peace out after a couple of days or a couple of weeks, if not a, if not a couple of days. I wanted the wildness, but I knew it was going to ask a lot of me to experience and to really let it work in me and change me, um, which it did. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I, I definitely got that as well. The just extreme wildness of it, but that was just something that I love. I, I love the chaos of it. And actually like when I was in, yeah. when I was in India, it felt to me just so at the time I didn't know how to necessarily, um, kind of put it into words the way that it felt, but since I've heard it termed as, um, I've been listening to a, to a podcast called what on earth is happening by a guy, guy called Mark Passio. And I think that he, I think, mm -hmm. I, think I know Mark Passio, this, but he said that, Oh, great, great, great. Uh, and yeah. I think it was him who said that India is like the heart chakra of the world. India is like the heart <laughs> chakra of the world. So it's like, so it's like, no, that is the place. Huh? You don't, you don't, what do you mean? I mean, uh, yeah, I don't agree. I mean, I, I, I understand what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to question you. I just mean to be like, I, I understand what he, I don't know that I agree, but anyway, continue what you're saying. Well, anyway, that actually, I, I had a feeling that you might object to the point actually, because, um, because you you said something just then about the noble savage was never a thing, and I'm getting the impression that you that these kind of ideas, I guess, are a little bit more kind of on the esoteric side and stuff, and you know maybe like some of these um, tribes and cultures and stuff that that existed before that we shouldn't kind of necessarily aspire to them, or that there's not as much kind of spiritual awakening to be had there as some people might imagine. I don't want to put words in your, in your mouth, but is that what? Sure, you, sure, sure. Is that yeah, your, I mean, your, your take on it? Yeah. So I, I, I come from the spiritual. So we talked, we started out in Christianity. I mentioned that I come from that esoteric side. Like when I was traveling through India, nothing could have been further from my mind than becoming Christian, literally nothing. So I was on the street doing the Vipassana meditation. I had done I've done 15 ayahuasca ceremonies in the US and Peru. You know, I've been to the sacred geometry meditations in Bali, right? So I've done the inner healing work. Like I've done, I've done all this stuff. And so, um, so I understand what, what Mark is saying. And I, I, I think there probably would have been a time that I agree with him. Now, I don't know that he's been, if he's been to India, um, but I would, I would regard him. I, I, first of all, that if you want to talk about Hinduism, Hinduism is, uh, I mean, it's, morally and logically incoherent um chakras are they're not a thing unfortunately but i, I oh yeah and to say yeah and to say and well yeah no in the essence of it in the essence of the you know that it's the the kind of like emotional it's not got like the structure but it's kind of like a purely very emotional place of of kind of spiritualism but it does not have it's, it's the opposite of the kind of structured mathematical kind of i guess very mm. organized um side of the world which would be its kind of opposite so i'm not necessarily oh i see i you know i don't have oh okay you're, you're making a point about the ch chakra thing i yeah, see just more about the feel of the, of the place got it okay so um so i would i i would uh okay so it wasn't a, it wasn't a theological let's say assertion it was a um it no, was no, no, a, not, nothing way, like that more more just the, the truly that the feeling of of uh what you have when you get there and, and kind of what it represents Yes. And by the way, just, just, so, I'm sorry about that. Um, because, because I come from the new age, I have a, I have a, a strong reaction to, um, to new age topics now, um, because it was something that I had to just pull out of myself very difficult. Well, so so maybe I, I've got more of them. Okay. So great, great. We can, we can go into all of that. I'm totally down with all. Okay. So here's, here's what I would say in response to that. The idea that India holds some sort of heart centric place in the world, I mm -hmm. think, um, is a, is a mistaken understanding of, of, uh, this idea that we are all one, that we are all one peoples in, in some sort of way. I, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's true in the way that Mark Passio means it. 
uh, because I know mm-hmm. Mark Passio focuses on the great work that we're all some evolving state of humanity, et cetera. We're one collective being. There is a truth in that, but it's not in the way that he's talking about. India has a very particular set of challenges related to its inability to impose structure on its own people. And, and it is what happens when the heart in that particular culture is allowed to run wild and be chaotic. In fact, if you allow the heart to govern the head, you get chaos. You get chaos. And so I know, I think what he's probably saying is that there's some nobility to this. No, no, the mind must rule the passions or you have chaos. And so to uh, to, to um, lionize India as some sort of uh, as some sort of beacon of heart centered living is to be ignorant of and to completely overlook the pure chaos that results of living that way. And we see our own version of this in America now, just how deeply feminist the nation is. Facts don't care about your feelings. Feelings don't care about your facts. That's what happens when you let the heart run wild in America, excuse me, in America, you get into a position where everything gets chaotic and upended and no one knows what goes the right direction anymore. The blessing of the West is that it had a faith tradition, particularly Christianity, that allowed for the proper balance between heart and head. That the heart says, we will always strive and fail. The head says, keep going and find forgiveness. And there's like a dialogue. It's actually probably the reverse that the head says, keep going. You will always fail. And the heart permits forgiveness. And you keep moving that forward. You keep iterating the civilization forward. What India does not have is the ability to, to impose discipline structure on the people. So it's what happens when the heart runs wild, the blessing of Western civilization And the reason why it's spread around the world is that what it preaches, in essence, is the gospel of disciplined civilizational living. Now, you can go too far with that. There is a ditch on either side of the road. But the the success, I had a mega viral tweet about this a few weeks ago, 1.5 million views. I'll I'll send it to you. Maybe you you might have seen it um, because we connected on Twitter, where it talks about between a nation like Japan, that's very in nature of the dialogue, that's very head centric, right? And by comparison, India is very heart-centric. The reason why America has succeeded as a civilization, and this was the nature of the tweet, is that we have found the right balance between the two. And that balance is only achievable in Christianity. And I laid that out. I laid out why that is in the tweet. Okay, cool. Yeah, I do want to get into the Christianity stuff, but I'm going to save that. Yes, I don't want to drive the car over that direction, but yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. But yeah, just on the point of of India and stuff, I'm not sure... Certainly, I haven't heard, I don't know whether this is his opinion, but I haven't heard Mark express the opinion that like India is some kind of a thing that we should be aspiring to, just to, to purely sure. live in that, in that okay. heart. I just, just made the point that it was kind of like the, the heart chakra in its essence. And I guess the, uh, yeah, more of that, like much like you said, actually, in terms of just that it's a very, very heart centered place, that it's just kind of like a total, it's total, it's the wild west in that sense. But yeah, I'm not sure that he would say that it's uh, something to aspire to. So maybe, maybe he does, I don't know, but I wouldn't, um, yeah. certainly wouldn't claim that he made that point. But sticking with that that point, because something you also said is that you did, you did ayahuasca, but you said, mm-hmm. I think you said it was, it was formative, but you wouldn't recommend it. And Correct. I would put ayahuasca and things like that in this kind of same um, kind of category. And I'm, I'm, mm. I'm interested to know why, like if it was formative, first of all, how it was formative for you. And, and second of all, if it was formative, but you don't recommend it, I just want to understand why. So plant medicines and depth psychology work and stuff like that. So um, there are uh, many aspects to our mind and our stories 
um, that are uh, that go to make us humans. A good example is is what happens when we experience trauma in childhood. So um, when we experience something very very painful or frightening, we have an undeveloped nervous system, right? And you can think of the subconscious. All information comes in through the subconscious, and then the subconscious decides what information can get filtered to the conscious mind. Like we are constantly taking in incredible amounts of data through our senses and our subconscious act as a filter, which arrives to the level of our conscious mind, which creates our perception, right? Like my feet are cold right now. Am I aware of that? No, but my body is right. And now it's making me aware that my feet are cold, etc. So um, when we experience trauma in childhood, this massive surge of information comes into our body which threatens to overwhelm the conscious mind. So what does the subconscious do? It protects us by walling that information off and storing it in the body. How does that, maybe it doesn't physically store it in the body, but it stores it somewhere in the nervous system, which is spread throughout the body. How does that work? I don't know, but it's in there. And as we, and as, and as, as we grow up, that traumatic experience is like an iceberg. And the tip of that iceberg is the belief that we form about ourselves and about life that guides us from never having that experience again. I'll give you a good example. You're walking down the street, the sidewalk with your dad, you're four years old, and you walk past a, a fenced in house, right? And suddenly this pit bull on a chain jumps out and starts barking really aggressively. The pit bull's on a chain, the fence is there, you were never in any danger, but it just scares the, scares the crap out of you as a kid traumatic experience, a surge of energy through the body. No one's at fault. You were safe the whole time. Still, it happened. Welcome to Earth. Earth is a shocking place for our nervous systems. So the surge of energy gets locked into the body and we grow up believing I'm not safe around dogs, right? So when you're a little kid, that belief is adaptive. It keeps you safe from dogs because you're, you're you know, fragile around dogs. But as you become an adult and when the little, the little, you know, purse-sized dog walks up to you and starts barking, right? Because you're on a walk and you shut down in fear, that belief has now become maladaptive. It's preventing you from leading a healthy life as a result of this trauma that's stored in the body. Okay. So what depth psychology does is you are able to open up the layers of your conscious mind, which like you have the subconscious and then you have like the, as you, as we mature, layers of consciousness are added on top of that, like layers of the onion. What therapy, depth psychology, and all this stuff does is it opens up those layers to that root level where you can begin addressing the nature of the experiential trauma that you had and replace the, and, and yourself replace the mistaken belief that, for example, I'm not safe around dogs with the true belief, which is I am safe around dogs. You see this in the movie Inception. In the movie Inception, you go to the dream within the dream within the dream, and then he takes the top and he spins the top, and then her whole personality changes because at the root level, her beliefs about herself change. Depth psychology work works the same way, going into the root level of our psyche, finding the mistaken beliefs and the trauma, healing it, purging it, letting it go, and then, and then, uh, and then establishing new beliefs ourselves, which then propagate through our personality. Okay, that's the dynamic. Here's the problem with plant medicines mm -hmm. and therapy and, 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 and everything in the secular world. When you take a powerful psychoactive drug that forces that level of openness, there are a couple things happening at the same time. There are three things happening at the same time, two of which aren't talked about. And this is why I don't recommend ayahuasca. First, 
you can go down to those deep levels of your mind and root out that trauma, which I did. That's why it was formative for me. But when you do that with these powerful psychoactive chemicals, which openly state in their own literature that in order to do this, you are communing with the plant spirit of ayahuasca and her helper spirits. That's the language. You are communing with disembodied beings that have more information about you than you can ever possibly have about them. You do not know their intentions. You do not even know what they are, and you can't follow up with them later. And you are entrusting them. You are entrusting your psyche, your soul to them. Why? Because a shaman said so? Do you know this guy? You trust because he work, he's working at some retreat center somewhere that he has your best interests at heart? How do you know? You're entrusting the deepest part of your own soul to this other person in a way that you can't switch off, you can't follow up on, and you have no idea your intentions, and you're working in an extreme information disadvantage, right? That's very, very dangerous, very dangerous to the human soul. And people do it all the time and think that it's fine, right? Okay, so that's one. The second thing that happens is that you are then adopting this worldview, and they don't talk about this either, that all is one, right? Which is, which is uh, we can talk about this as well, but there are only two religions in the world. There's one religion that says all is one, and there's another religion that says all is two, right? And so what you don't recognize when you're going in for this inner healing work is, yes, you're maybe rooting out your trauma. Hall, praise God, hallelujah. That, that, that is work that needs to be done for all of us. I think it's very important that we begin to develop emotional flexibility because we live in turbulent times. And by rooting, trauma is what creates emotional inflexibility. By rooting out trauma, we become emotionally flexible and adaptable. That is a good thing. However, when you're communing with disembodied spirits to help you do this, and you can't follow up with them, you can't ask them questions, and you're just giving them this giant benefit of the doubt, that's extremely dangerous. And then you're adopting this massive theological worldview that is deeply an error along with it. And so I don't recommend it because yes, I derive benefit from it, but praise God, I was kept safe. I've had some horrific experiences on, on plant medicines where you can't turn it off. There's no pulling over being like, hey, I'm not enjoying this, these demonic visions and this demonic assault that's going on. And people will cover this up in the psychedelic world and say that, well, that's just an experience that you needed to have. Like, I'm sorry, like, I don't have strong enough words to say how awful that is to say this demonic persecution that you were experiencing was just an experience that you needed to have. How cruel is that? Would you look, would you look a child who's being sex trafficked in the eyes and say the same thing to them? Sorry, kid, this is just an experience that you need to have. It's this inability to recognize evil for what it is and to put evil on the pe person experiencing it and not call it evil. And that's a whole other conversation that we can get into. But these, 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 this, these substances are very dangerous. And the perceived benefit accrued is very small compared to the massive amount of risk and the theological error that people are getting into. And so I advocate very forcefully against these substances for that reason. Though I had personal benefit, I did not know what I was doing. I know now what I was doing. And I got very lucky and blessed by God to not have had worse outcomes than I had. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I... I respect the fact that you did it had benefit, but still say, okay, even though I have benefit, I, you know, I was that you don't necessarily advocate purely on the basis that you've had benefit and you've thought deeply about it. Correct. However, would you, would you not say like, because what you just said, said there is, you know, you, you can have extreme suffering on these substances, which is absolutely true. You can have extreme suffering, but then also we've just been discussing when you travel, 
that you can put yourself through the, these situations where you're, you're, you're putting yourself through suffering, you know, so, something like taking, taking the boat across the ocean and having to put yourself through the storm, that extreme suffering, which you had to overcome was actually one of your formative experiences as well. So why, why do you deny the um, suffering of something like a plant medicine experience having value? You don't deny it having value, of course. I don't, I don't sure, sure. You completely deny it. But why, why could we not look at that through the exact same lens as suffering in other areas and these, this kind of adversity that we'll put ourselves through, which can, which can actually elevate the, the spirit of an individual? Sure, uh, because I, I apply the same standard to both of them, and I realized how uh, how cosmically fortunate I was to not have been killed or harmed in various other ways with all the other things that I was doing. That's been a real thing that I've been struggling with, is that for 16 years, I wanted nothing more than to travel. And I went and uh, I traveled, and the entire time uh, I was in uh, I was in spiritual danger, I was in moral danger, and I was in physical danger. And I haven't yet come to full grips with the reality that I was kept safe from the worst possible outcomes of everything that I went to go experience on this adventure, but I very much could have been. And it was solely by the blessing of God that that didn't happen. And so um, we can talk more about this, but I, I regard my life as a gift now and my life as, as a living sacrifice to God um, because he gave me the opportunity to survive when he didn't have to. And so, um, the, and, but we started out the conversation talking about um, why do men have to go looking for masculinity in the first place? Because there's no place for men in society anymore. But the real challenge, the, the real challenge, and this is the one that many men still flee from and perhaps always have, is the challenge of righteously providing for a family, is the challenge of righteously leading a wife and children. And that is ultimately what I think men want, what they're made to want, but society has no place for them to do that anymore. So they go seek that challenge other ways. And um, it, now certainly there have been eras in human history with men who were explorers and men who were adventurers, right? Uh, I can think of many, of di many different names, but that was not the vast majority of men seeking these experiences. You know, some men took on that responsibility for the benefit of their civilization or to explore, but that's a very different, that's a very different thing than saying, I don't know what it means to be a man. So I'm going to get on board this ship. That wasn't a question that men were asking. That was just like, well, uh, I'm going to give my life in service of this. And, uh, you know, this is, this is just what I feel called to do. That's different than like, I'm going searching for something I've never had in the first place. Um, and so how do I square that? I say, I, I use them by the same standard and say like, praise God, I was kept safe from that. That doesn't mean that it's the right call for, for anybody else. Oh, okay. So you even think that these kind of experiences that you went through with, with traveling and putting yourself in these dangerous situations also shouldn't be necessarily aspired to that people should be able to kind of come to these, um, I, I guess, to achieve the goals of finding their own masculinity and finding their true essence outside of that. Is that what you're getting at? You put them actually both in the same category. I do. Putting yourself through dangerous, arduous. Oh, okay. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so, so yeah, like, I guess that's consistent. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Dangerous. It depends on what we consider dangerous and arduous, right? Like, like as my friend Jeremiah says, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And, and, and that was me. Right. But there, there are ways that we can do dangerous and arduous things that, um, that don't risk our lives or our, our spiritual sanctity or moral sanctity in quite, in quite the same, in quite the same way. A, a good example is, is what I was really looking for. And I think I said this, this earlier is that, um, the experience with non-negotiable reality, 
right? Um, that was something that men used to take for granted, whether it be the crops or the mines or whatever, like you just had to deal with this hard thing in front of you. And that was a test, but our world doesn't have that anymore. So I thrust myself into situations where I had to deal with non-negotiable reality in the ways, in the ways that were available. And that was how I got that fed to me. Um, and I think men require that. And I would prefer that men not go get that in such life risking situations. Uh, and I don't think men should need to go there to get it, but we just have to upend civilization as we've currently constructed to begin providing that experience again to men, because it will come at the cost of women's independence. And that's a price that many won't allow us to pay for various reasons. Okay. Can you, can you just, um, go a bit further into that point. Um, when you mm -hmm. say that we, we need to kind of switch up, uh, the thick dynamics of our civilization to, to bring about something where, where this is kind of inherent rather than people have to go seeking it. What do you mean? What kind of civilization would that look like? What kind of changes would have to be made in society to bring it about? Mm -hmm. So a, a big problem is that, um, very, I'm going to state this in the absolute and then I'll, and then I'll, and then I'll provide some caveats. Women sure. cannot compete with men in anything, right? The smartest man is far smarter than the smartest woman. The strongest man is far stronger than the strongest woman. The fastest man is far faster. All these, all these things are known. Now that doesn't mean that any average woman cannot be smarter, stronger, or faster than any average man, but by and large, men will outcompete women. And there's a big reason for that. A big reason for that is our biological success in reproduction is dependent on winning competition in a way that it's not necessary for women. A, a man needs to show up and produce and achieve and defeat other men in order to um, in order to rise in his desirability to get the best mate, the best woman attracted to him. Women can just be like, "Hey, you, let's go," and that's how that's how that works. So men have competition built into our structure, our bones, our natures in a way that women don't. Now, when you liberate women in, from, from marriage to compete in the marketplace and you start discovering very quickly that women can't compete with men, a properly motivated man, a woman cannot compete with a properly motivated man, if you have equality, egalitarianism as your highest ideal, meaning that men and women need to be equal in all ways, what do you do? You provide force through the levers of, in, levers of institutions to create false equality and tilt the playing field. You strategically, systematically, over generations, disempower men, including through um, sabotaging their testosterone. Like if you look at declining testosterone rates throughout civilization, they're going down sharply. Why? Because testosterone is the competition hormone. So you have men declining in their desire to compete biologically. And that's one example. A good reason for those of you who work in corporate environments, why, why there's all this business speak, like we're going to circle back and touch base, is that it's fundamentally passive, aggressive, competitive language that doesn't put anyone on edge. Where if, if it was a room full of men in a meeting, just men talking with each other, right, we would all be much rougher with each other than we, would, than we are permitted to be around women because men's direct speech uh, disadvantages women. So we've essentially nerfed and neutered society to create this environment that women can achieve in, inverting everything because women's equality, really in many ways, women's superiority is the highest ideal. And I say women's equality is essentially women's superiority because who gets to decide when it's equal enough? She does. 
she gets to say when it's equal enough. That means that ultimately, no, it's not equal enough. It's not equal enough. It's not more equal, more equal. Ultimately, that means that she's in control, right? So if we were to construct a society that was truly based to bring out men's best qualities and allow them to allow them to compete, women would not be able to compete, which would mean that women would end up having to be in the home and rather than being in the marketplace or in the public square, make the home, which used to be such a high value that started changing around the industrial revolution. That's a much longer conversation. God's created order says that men are to be protectors and providers and women are to be nurturers in the home. That created order is being rebelled against with everything our civilization has, and it will ultimately fail. It will ultimately fail. But, you know, when you have women's equality in terms of politics and economics as the highest goal, and you, uh, you use the levers of, civil, levers of civilization to create leverage over men, to put them into a weakened state, that's what you, that's what you get. And that's what I'm, that's kind of what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of halfway there with you. I mean, like, I definitely agree that when it comes to, first of all, I think there should not be any stigma when it comes to women living in more traditional ways. Like I, I think that the problem I is you have so much stigma now. Yeah, he's gone he's gone the other way. I think there was one point where it was stigmatized that women will work and be like, oh really you're working, you know. But now it's like the opposite way. Now it's like if a woman doesn't want to work and says, no, I want to be in the home, then there's a stigma against that, especially in the West. And I definitely think that, that like absolutely just shouldn't exist. Um and I agree that there shouldn't be also just anything that that tries to create false equality, I think is just unnatural. I think it goes just against the basic economics just the economics of life and the economics of work and uh, and all the rest of it so i would i would agree with you in that sense but do you not think that like f just for women who who th there is for some women just an inherent sense that they want to do certain things and maybe it's even in things that women would ex ex excel in more i mean there's certain professions that women would naturally excel in more than men for example like would you not agree that like women for especially for those for those roles like why not participate um, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what those what those professions what those professions uh, might be, um, but why not women participate? Well, let's let's run it out, right? Well, first of all, part of being on Earth is none of us get to do all the things that we want to do. Like, be, part of being a man, uh, as as uh, Pastor Doug Wilson says, masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Everything mm -hmm. that we associate with being a truly good and virtuous man, that man is naturally self-sacrificial up to and including his life. So I can, obviously I can pull many stories from the Bible, but a great example is William Wallace from Braveheart. He's willing to physically give his life and be tortured in exchange for his ideals, right? So that's, men are called by our very essence, by our very bodies to sacrifice our lives for our communities, our wives, and our children. We don't get to do what we want to do either. And so there is a there's a real resistance in our society now to saying to women, you don't you also don't get to do what you want to do. We don't we we men have our own sacrifice that we are called to make. And there's a reluctance in our society to say, women, on behalf of civilization, this is a sacrifice that you have to make. They don't want to make that sacrifice anymore. They decided and we civilizationally empowered them not to have to so far to the point where you where you pointed out is true that a woman says like, I don't want to have a career. I would like to stay home and raise my kids and make a home. She gets shamed because she's violating the sisterhood because the sisterhood decided at the end of the 19th century, 19th century, that they were going to 
throw down the patriarchy, quote unquote, that they were going to band together to take power. And they did. Now, they, they, they had to use men to do it, ironically, but they did. And so much so now that if a woman says, I don't want to go that way, she gets shamed by the sisterhood viciously. And women are vicious to each other. Ask any woman and she'll tell you. Women treat each other worse than men, men would ever treat them. And I've had this validated multiple times. So when you say, when you say, when you say that, like, well, what about women wanting to do this? Our life is not defined by the things that we want to do. Our lives are defined by the levels of sacrifices we're willing to make on behalf of others. And motherhood is the greatest sacrifice that any woman can make. She sacrifices many different things about herself, um, which we can list. And, and, but so is fatherhood. Fatherhood and leading a home in a godly and righteous way is a gigantic sacrifice. And so the part of adulthood is getting into a place where, yes, I'm ready to make that sacrifice. But no one is asked to make sacrifices anymore. Regarding those professions, I'm I'm not sure um, what profession you might you, you're 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 thinking of that a woman would naturally do better than a man. Um, the one that comes to mind is is nursing an infant at the breast. That would be something that a woman is far is far superior well, at. I, well, I, nursing in general, for example. I mean, I, there's a lot of professions that are or, that are dominated by women right now. That I would say perhaps perhaps are more in line with like the the feminine um kind of instincts I, i'm not i'm not sure can like I, you know can i ask you a really hard question than, yeah yeah go ahead. do you think that do you think the dancing nurses during covid prove that women are better at being nurses than men are well, they were also dancing men i mean there was a lot uh, but, of men dancing in there as well like well, but, I mean, I, I, nurse, I think nursing, nursing in general yeah, I don't have I mean, the like, medical industry. when I saw yeah. those. Yeah. For, yeah. When I saw those videos in general, like I had a huge, you know, I definitely lost a lot of respect in general, but it wasn't only women that I saw dancing. I mean, I saw a lot of men doing that as well. So there's, there's a book. Um, this is someone you might like to have on your, on your podcast. I think his name is Dr. Mark McDonald. It might be Scott McDonald. And it was, it was called mm -hmm. United States of Fear. Um, he became very prominent during and after the COVID era because and this book talks about how COVID was a phenomenon that was entirely driven by hysterical women. And uh, that's, those are his words. And I think he's right because uh, a strong, confident man never went to another guy out in public and be like, Hey bro, put on your mask. Like how many times did that happen? No, they did. Most no, of the time. They did. I, no, I, did. Oh, someone, I never. Some guy said it to me on a bus. He literally said it to me on a bus in, in, uh, in London. Some like old man said something to me and I was like, Oh my God. But you never said it to anybody. I never, but no, but I never, I never believed the whole bullshit anyway. <laughs> right, right. Because men's, an older man, an old man's one thing, but you never saw a fit, confident man walk up like, hey, bro, put your mask on. That never happened. It was always older yeah. men. It was always weaker men, definitely out of shape men. And there was always a woman standing behind him. It was, it was like, look, this, because, because this is the thing is that women are naturally, Jordan Peterson talks about this. Women are very agreeable by nature. Women don't have the same depth of rationality that men do. Men are very rational, physical creatures. It's our blessing. Women are very intuitive, emotional creatures. When we work together, things are very powerful. But when you let the heart, right, the, the emotions and intuition run wild without the check of rationality, you get chaos. And that's what COVID was. So you see these, the dancing nurses and you see flight attendants and you see school teachers. Those were the foot soldiers of the entire COVID phenomenon. Where were all the men standing up and saying, no. And so, so the professions that you say that men would be better to do, we'll, we'll pick three of them, school teachers, nurses, 
and uh, flight attendants. I, I think men could do a pretty good job. And I wish it had been men in those, like, you know, straight men in those professions. We can talk about that too, in those, in those professions. I just nuked your podcast. Yeah, we've, got plenty, <laughs> <laughs> like we've, got plenty of, we've got plenty of men who are flight attendants. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. no shortage. <laughs> Hit me up in the comments, everybody. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Um, but no, actually, just because you brought up Jordan Peterson, and one of the things that that he said quite often is that women, ex- obviously, there is a generalize it. You know, there is a, a in general, women sit in a certain position with their their preferences, etc., which lead sure. to certain outcomes that we can observe in society. But you also have people on the extreme. So there are some women who are who are you would assess their qualities, and they might be more masculine than some men, right? Like. There's right. some men who are extremely feminine in their, in their quality, et cetera. So you get people on on these ends of the spectrum. So could we not agree, like, you know, because for, for me, for instance, I would just say, like, just let the market decide. Let the market decide this. Women shouldn't be shamed if they want to stay in the home. But all, at the same time, women, you know, at the same time, we shouldn't necessarily be saying, okay, like, women should, uh, like, go out and work, et cetera. I think that just, like, let sure. people make their own decisions and let the market decide. Because for those women who are, you know, particularly kind of astute with business, who have maybe a lot of masculine qualities, who just say, look, this this is something I want to achieve. Who are we mm-hmm. to say, well, no, this shouldn't be your your role in society? Like, sh- like could, sure. would you agree with just letting the market decide these things? Or do you think there should be actually some kind of social or political imposition against it? Uh, I, I think if we let the market decide, it will naturally demonstrate like a good example of this in, is in is in the tragedy that is the U.S. military right now, where standards have repeatedly been lowered and also police forces in order to make them more available to women. For example, pull ups, you know, not not chin ups where, yeah. where you have your 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 hand your palms facing towards you pull ups. Men will consistently outperform women like there are very few women that can even do like because they don't have the upper body strength to do a pull up. So the pull-up standards have been consistently lowered to, in order to make it more available for women to be able to pass that standard. Now, if we set we a standard that men... I agree with you that. I agree. Great. And so that's the thing. And so the contention that I'm making is that a properly motivated man with a normal healthy level of testosterone, and I don't mean by today's standards, I mean by like 50 years ago standards, will not be able to outcompete her male counterparts. If she can, fine. Absolutely. If you can out compete, like if we're really talking about yeah. equality of opportunity, then compete in the marketplace with men. You will find very quickly that it's very difficult. And there are lots of examples of this. Like the U.S. women's champion, the U.S. women's soccer team got destroyed by a team of high school players. Like that just happened again. Mm-hmm. And so that biological reality is so confronting if you have equality of outcome as your goal that obviously we have to do something to tilt the playing field. If you're okay with not tilting the playing field, I'm in and hallelujah, but that will reveal God's created order very quickly, which is why it can't be allowed, which is why I'm going to get yeah, you in yeah. a lot of trouble. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, no, no, I, I actually, I mean, I don't know necessarily what the outcome would look like. I think that, I think that I probably don't, ex- I expect that it would shift the tables a, a lot. Um, mm-hmm. but I still think that I would just let the market decide these things. And yes, even if that might look less equal, et cetera, I'm totally happy and at cool. peace with that. And I do think you should take away the social stigmatization, social, um, stigmatization. 
uh, for women, because I think that that is also another factor is that it's not just the fact that we're saying, okay, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to have quotas and things like this, which happens obviously not just for gender, but it happens for other things, race, et cetera. But we should get rid of all of those quotas for a start. But then we should also say, well, look, there's so many people who are doing things that they don't actually want to do because society has pressured them into it because society said you have sure. to do this. And maybe for, for a lot of women, it might be the na natural inclination to say, you know what, I don't want to compete. It's not in my nature to compete. And that should mm -hmm. be absolutely fine. So yeah, I think that we can all kind of, I guess, uh, agree there at least, um, you know, mm -hmm. depend, you know, regardless of how extreme your views are and what the site, the outcomes would look like is to just say, yeah, just make the, make it equal opportunity, make it, um, equality of opportunity and, and leave it there, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. believe in, in criminal or civil penalties for that. Like that's, I would never, I would never advocate uh, on behalf of that, but, um, but yeah, in, in an open market, we would, uh, in a, in a truly free and open market, uh, we would see a, a, a radical shifting of everything um, back to levels that would be considered so politically incorrect that all of M M MSNBC would explode and sink into the bottom of the earth. Let's hope so. <laughs> Let's so, hope so. We can lie on that. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to wrap this half of the conversation up here in part two, which is coming up in the next episode. We touch on the modern manosphere, Will's thoughts on femininity and feminism, and we switch gears a little bit and go into the topic of religion and how Christianity relates to morality. So if you enjoyed this part, just a reminder to give me a five-star rating on whichever podcast app you're using. And you can check out the links below to see ways that you can support the show. All right, see you in part two.